For others, you may be in the shadow of a mountain of loneliness and grief. And just like Mount Everest, these mountains we all face in life are overwhelming. When we're standing in front of the mountain of grief, we're overwhelmed. When we're standing in front of the mountain of disappointment, we are at a loss for words. How am I going to get over this mountain? How am I going to handle what's in front of me? And I came across this quote by Mark Patterson. And this is what he said. It's the mountain we overcome that makes us who we are. The inclination is to curse the mountain in our path and try to avoid it together. Don't be too quick to curse the challenge you face. Because God may be preparing you for something bigger, something better. We see this obstacle in front of us and we want to get mad about it. We want to yell at it. We want to do something to remove it. When the reality is God may be placing that mountain in front of you to get your attention this morning. He may be placing that mountain and telling you, listen, you can't get over it by yourself. You cannot do it alone. This morning, we're starting a new series simply called Move the Mountain. Move the Mountain. And that sounds like a funny expression to say. Because let's be honest, we can stand at the base of Mount Everest all day and say move, and it's not going to move. But here's where I came up with this thought. Take your Bibles for just a second. Turn over to Matthew's Gospel. Matthew chapter 17, verse 20 specifically. And this is the theme verse for this series, Move the Mountain. Matthew chapter 17, verse 20. Now to give you some context, Matthew 17 starts with Jesus and Peter, James, and John going to that mountaintop and Jesus revealing his true glory. We call that spot the Mount of Transfiguration. It's when those three individuals, those disciples closest to Jesus, see him in his truest form and they are overwhelmed. But at the base of that mountain, the rest of the disciples are trying to remove a demon from a boy. And they're not being successful. They are struggling. So when Jesus, James, Peter, and John come back down from that mountain, they are confronted. And the disciples come to Jesus and say, listen, we tried to do what you told us to do, and we couldn't do it. And here's where we pick it up. Start in verse 20. There's just one verse that's going to lead us through this series. So Jesus said to them, because of your unbelief, Verse, assuredly, I say to you, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. Notice what Jesus tells the disciples, if you have this amount of faith, you can tell the mountain to move. Now, Jesus is not saying to physically move the mountain from point A to point B, but here's what Jesus is saying. He's giving us a spiritual truth because you and I will face mountain-like difficulties. Some of those mountains you face may be small and you can get right over them. Some of those mountains you face will be large. And you're going to struggle outside of God leading you and guiding you through those difficulties in life that seem overwhelming. Because you and I will face these mountains in our life. But when we face this mountain in front of us, we are not called to cower. We're not called to high in fear. God tells us to listen, through me, walking alongside you, 
we can move from one side of this mountain over to the other side. So in this series, we're going to be talking about moving from one side of a mountain to another. This morning, we're looking at moving from doubt to faith. Moving from doubt to faith. How many of you this morning struggled with Scripture and what God's Word says? We all should. Because we don't have it figured out. Listen, the minute you think you've got God's word figured out, he's going to show you something you haven't paid attention to. But we struggle with God's word because we read things and we scratch our head and we wonder, God, why does it happen this way? Or God, why does it have to happen the way it happens? We all struggle with this. Some people this morning are struggling with whether or not the Bible is true. Billy Graham, early in his ministry, he struggled. Think about this. The world's greatest evangelist, when he started in his ministry, struggled with God's word. He wrestled with God's word. It's told that one night while he was on a mountain trail, he sat in the Bible on a tree stump. And this is when he cried out. He said, Father, I am going to accept this as thy word by faith. I'm going to allow faith to go beyond my intellectual questions and doubts. And I will believe this to be your inspired word. At that moment, Billy Graham's life was changed. His ministry was changed. Because what he said at that moment is said, basically, God, I don't understand. And I'm going to let what I know intellectually dictate what your word tells me is true. I'm going to hold this word to be true because it comes from you and you alone. And because of that, it leads to this first thought. We all doubt. Whether or not you want to believe that this morning, we all struggle with doubt. For some, faith is like sunshine. We can see it, we understand it, we enjoy it. But when doubt creeps in, it's like that shadow, it's like that cloud that blocks the sun. It causes us to wonder, causes us to shiver because of our unbelief and our doubt. And here is the reality. On this side of heaven, we're all going to wrestle with doubt. On this side of heaven, we're going to wonder about faith because none of us are exempt. We can read through scripture of individuals who went through deep moments of doubting. Moses doubted that he could lead the children out of captivity. Moses told God, I can't talk good. Moses told God, what can I show them to make them believe? David wondered if God would protect him when King Saul was after him. Elijah wondered if he would survive Queen Jezebel's pit squad. Jeremiah doubted his call as a prophet. But we go on, Solomon doubted. John the Baptist doubted. Peter doubted. Paul doubted. The list goes on and on. Of men we read about in Scripture who had moments of doubt. But outside of Scripture, people like Martin Luther, John Calvin, D.L. Moody, Billy Graham, people who we respect because of their Christian walk and because of the message they proclaim had moments of doubt. And for every believer in this room this morning, you're going to come face to face with a moment when you got something that God's doing. And you're going to wonder what's going on. And you're going to struggle with it. And you're going to fight it. 
Because in your mind, you can't figure out why it's happening this way. Why is it going on? Why does it have to happen? But as I just shared, we all doubt. So let me give you some reasons for doubt. There are some reasons we doubt. And I love this, this quote. And by a Christian writer named Frederick Beecher. And he put in perspective the reason the difference between doubt and faith. And here's what he said. Doubt, doubts are like pants in the doubts are like pants in the pants of faith. They keep awaiting and moving. We're always moving. Think about it. When I put on a pair of pants, do my pants stay still? What happens? They move because what? I move. But if I stop, they stop. The reminder is faith is an ongoing thing. It's a continuous thing. Faith doesn't cause us to stop. That causes us to, cause us to stop. And what's really bad is when you misquote a statement, but we try to read it again correctly. Doubt is like ants in your pants of faith. Now that makes sense. Woo! Keep your way moving. So what are the ants to begin with we call doubts? What are the things that keep us from doing what we want to do? What are the things that keep us from trusting God completely? Here's some thoughts in your outline this morning. One of those issues with doubt is called unlived truth. Unlived truth. Nothing creates more doubt than living in unlived truth. Because there's a disconnect from what we believe and what we know. And that disconnect causes us to be loud in doubt, to creep in and overwhelm us. And there's an inconsistency from what belief is and what behavior is when doubt creeps in. Because when I allow doubt to creep in, I'm not trusting what truth really is. And I'm not living the truth that I know in Scripture. That's a reason for doubt. It's unlived truth. But here's a bitter one I think that we all deal with. Unexamined faith. Unexamined faith. And here's what I mean by that. Many of you would stand up and say this statement with boldness and assurance. The Bible says it, I believe it, and that's it. It sounds good when you say it out loud, but there's a problem with that. What happens when your belief comes under attack? What happens when you read something, see something, hear something that causes you to doubt what you truly believe? What happens when you look at something and you realize, maybe I need to examine what I truly believe because my faith hasn't been challenged. Listen, it's one thing to say, I know what I believe. But it's another thing to say, I know what I believe when my beliefs are challenged. When somebody stands in front and says, that's not what God's word says. Is your faith strong enough? Is your faith solid enough to know what scripture says when you're challenged? To know whether or not it's in scripture or not in scripture. Because too many times we don't allow our faith to be examined. We hold on to this principle. I believe it. I know it. I'm good. Until the day you're challenged. Some reasons for doubt, unlived truth, unexamined faith. Here's another big one. Unanswered prayer. Unanswered prayer. 
Nothing will cause you more doubt than hearing silence from heaven. Because you're going to start doubting God's goodness, God's wisdom, God's existence. Because you're crying out for help and you hear nothing but silence. If you may be legitimate in your prayer, in your need, and you have begged God to intervene, then the heavens feel like you're silent. And you feel like your prayers are only making it to the ceiling and not heard. For just a moment, take your Bibles, turn over to Daniel chapter 10. Because I want to show you an example of unanswered prayers. What happens when we cry out to God and we wrestle with Him hearing the response? Daniel had this issue. Daniel had this problem. He's praying about a situation, he's praying about a need in Daniel chapter 10. And notice what takes place here. Daniel chapter 10, starting in verse 4. And this is what Scripture says. Now on the 24th day of the first month, as I was by the side of the great river, that is the Tigris, I lifted my eyes and looked and behold a serpent clothed in linen, whose waist was girded with the gold of the path, his body was like barrel, his face and appearance of lightning, his eyes like torches of fire, his arms and feet like burnished bronze in color, and the sound of his words by the voice of the multitude. And I, Daniel, alone saw the vision, for the men who were with me did not see the vision, but a great terror fell upon them, so that they fled and hid themselves. Therefore I was left alone when I saw the great vision, though strength remained in me, and my vigor was turned to frailty in me, and I retained no strength. Yet I heard the sound of his words, and while I heard the sound of his words, I was in deep sleep on my face, and my face on the ground. Suddenly a hand touched me, which made me tremble on my knees and on the palms of my hands. And he said to me, O Daniel, man greatly beloved, understand the words that I speak to you. Stand upright, for I have now been sent to you. While he was speaking this word to me, I stood trembling. Then he said to me, Do not fear, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and to humble yourself before your God, your words were heard, and I have come because of your words. Verse 13. But the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days, and behold, Michael, one of the chief princesses, came to help me. For I have been left alone there with the kings of Persia. What that scripture tells us is that Daniel had been praying and it felt like his prayers were not answered. This angel shows up and says, Listen, I would have been here sooner if I was held up by a demon. That's what he's referring to there in verse 13 when he talks about the kingdom of Persia. He's talking about his evil spiritual force was withholding him from making it to hear Daniel to help Daniel. And he says in that verse that Michael, one of the chief princes, had to come and help me so I could get to you. Now it's hard to say if this is a common practice, but scripture tells me that sometimes the reason our prayers are unanswered is because there are demonic forces that are delaying our answer to prayer. Satan doesn't want your prayers to be heard. 
He doesn't want your prayers to be answered. So it makes sense for him to send people to get in the way of your prayers. That's one thought when it comes to unanswered prayers. Here's another one. Sometimes our prayers are not answered because of unconfessed sin. Unconfessed sin. You're choosing to live in a sin if you're trying to pray to God to hear your prayers. Yet scripture tells us that God can't be in the presence of sin. That's why he couldn't see Adam and Eve in the garden. Because of the sin. Yet we're going to pray to God and say, God, help me with this when I know I'm dealing with a sin that I have not confessed to him. I think another reason our prayers aren't answered is because of idolatry. We're putting things ahead of God. We're putting stuff ahead of God. We're putting a spouse, we're putting children, we're putting a job, we're putting an activity ahead of God. And we make that our God, we wonder why the true God of heaven doesn't hear our prayers and cry out. I think another reason for unanswered prayers is a lack of generosity. Listen, we are quick to tell God what we need, but we are not as quick to tell God simply thank you. Thank you for letting me see another day. Thank you for protecting my family. Thank you for helping me with the situation. Thank you that you're in control and I'm not. Thank you that you love me enough to send your son to die for my sin. We'll talk about everything else that God will forget to simply say, thank you. And I think one more reason that prayer is not answered is because we forget the sovereign will of God. That God is sovereign over all things. I'm reminded of what Paul tells us over in Romans chapter 1, verse 13. He says, listen, I had a desire to come to see you, but I couldn't because God had not released me from where I was. Paul understands that God is sovereign. And sometimes the reason God doesn't answer our prayers is because of his sovereignty. Because we don't need an answer at that moment. Or what it is we're praying for, maybe needs to happen in a different way. These are just a few of the reasons that we see about unanswered prayers. But here's one more, and this one is become very evident this week. And it's undeserved suffering. Undeserved suffering. If you and I were asked, we're going to come to ask God a question. Here's what most of us would ask God. Why does God allow evil to suffer? We would ask that question. If you and I, the average person says, what question would you like to ask God? If you could ask God one question, what would it be? Why does it pay the suffering? And then some of you would make it personal. Why does God allow bad things to happen to you? I think about the events of this past week. Between what's taking place in Texas, what's going on in our own provision and I go God why God why is this happening why are we seeing this steal why are we having to deal with it why are we having to struggle with it why is it we see these things happen and yet we wonder if you're still in control I'm reminded of a moment when C.S. Lewis after he lost his wife C.S. Lewis who's one of the greatest theologians he struggled with the death of his wife and he made this statement in one of his books called Grief Observed. 
He said, the conclusion I dread is not, so there is no God after all, but so this is what God's really like. Deceive yourself no longer. This is C.S. Lewis, a man who is known for his words about who God is, and he struggles with what God is doing in this idea of undeserved suffering. And this is what suffering does to our faith. We see tragedies take place in our world. We experience tragedies in our own families. We go, why, God? Why did you allow this to happen? Why did this take place? Because then that causes us to doubt who God truly is and doubt the person of God. So these are just some of the reasons for doubt. And if we're honest with ourselves, we all wrestle with one of these reasons. So what do we do? So how do we get through doubt? How do we understand what doubt looks like in an individual? Vicki, I'm going to apologize to you right now. If you want to learn how a frog jumps, then I say, oh, you've got to see what makes it tick, right? So this morning, for the remainder of the message, I want us to dissect I want us to look at dissecting a doubt In Scripture, the perfect specimen for our little science experiment this morning is the disciple of Thomas. Thomas is presented in the gospel as a champion doubter because he admits his doubts. He admits that he struggles. And listen, a lot of times we look at the life of Thomas, we look down on it and say, man, Thomas, you should never have doubted what Jesus was going to do. You shouldn't have doubted the plan. You shouldn't have doubted the purposes. But the thing I like about Thomas is this. He's honest. He's honest with his doubt. He's honest with his questions. He doesn't pretend to accept things as they are. He looks at everything and wants a rational thought. He's an independent thinker. And I appreciate that for him. You know why? Because Thomas is not afraid to ask the questions that every one of us wants answered. We don't have the nerve to ask. So this morning, I want us to spend a little time dissecting Thomas and his doubts. The first way we're going to do that is look at Thomas and his doubts about life. His doubts about life. Take the Bible, turn to John chapter 11. You see the scripture on the screen behind you where we're going this morning. But in order to understand what's going on, we need to get into his person who he is, and the things he does. John chapter 11, if you're turning there this morning, is the first time we ever hear Thomas speak in the Bible. And he only said one statement, but it's a profound statement. Now, John chapter 11 is looking at the resurrection of Lazarus. But we know this passage of Scripture. We know later in this chapter, verse 25, Jesus is going to tell the disciples, I'm the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. We know that Mary and Martha are friends. We know they live east of Jerusalem in the town of Bethany. We know Jesus waited two days before he showed up. But as Paul Harvey used to say, let me show you the rest of the story. Pick up in verse 4. Because we tend to skip this part and look at front and the back of this chapter. Try to verse 4 with me. Verse 4 says, When Jesus heard that, this sickness unto death, the, the glory of God, the Son of God, may be glorified through. We know why he waited. 
We know what takes place. Now jump down to verse 8. Then the disciples said to him, Rabbi, lately the Jews sought to stone you. And are you going there again? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble, because he sees the light of this world. But if one walks in the night, he stumbles, because the light is not in him. These things he said, and after that he said to them, Our friend Lazarus sleeps, but I know that I may wake him up. Then his disciples said, Lord, if he sleeps, he will get well. However, Jesus spoke of his death, but they thought he was speaking about taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And I am glad for your sakes that I was not there, that you may believe. Nevertheless, let us go to him. Then Thomas, who was called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go, that we may die with him. Thomas has lots of doubt. But look back at verse 16. He doesn't understand the big picture. He's thinking about life, but not life in general. He's thinking when he hears that statement earlier in the chapter, when Jesus says he's sleeping, they think he's just taking a nap. And even with death, remember, going back to verse 8, the disciples say, Jesus, why are you going back there? You know the Jews want to kill you. You know the Jews want to remove you because of all the people that are following you. Why are you going? And he explained that. But then look at verse 16. Then look at Thomas and what he says there. Thomas says, listen, let us go that we may die with him. Thomas is always having this idea that, listen, even though he's a doubting person, he is also one that confesses to be a devoted person, a follower of Jesus Christ. He said that he's willing to go to Jesus into danger and risk his own life. Thomas says, listen, if he's going to die, we're going to go die with him. And listen, we may not applaud Thomas's faith, but we do applaud his loyalty and courage. He's willing to go with Jesus, not understanding what's going to take place because of those doubts about life. He's thinking of life physical. He's not thinking about life spiritual. But if we're honest, we all have doubts about our life. What are we doing? What have we done? What have we not done? In the end, Thomas has this idea, listen, he's going to die, we're going to die with him. But also, look at Thomas's doubt about the future. He has doubts about life, but his doubts about his future. Turn me over to John chapter 14. As you're turning there, this next portrait of Thomas, he's in the upper room. He's had the last supper with Jesus. And Jesus is explaining to the disciples what's happened. And he talks about going to prepare a place for them. Jesus says in the first part of chapter 14 of John, I go to prepare a place for you. If I go, I'm going to come back again. And this is the second time we see Thomas speak. And Jesus says in verse 4 of chapter 14, And where I go, you know, and the way you know. And Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you are going. How can we know the way? Imagine being Thomas for a moment. He hears Jesus talking about verse 2, in my father's house are many mansions. Thomas is thinking, where's the father's house? Where are you going? Because Thomas doesn't have a clear understanding. 
understanding of the destination or how to get there. Here's Jesus made this statement, and if we're honest with ourselves for a moment, we wonder too. We understand what following Jesus is like, and we think man, it would be a lot simpler if we knew how everything was going to turn out. Man, it'd be easier to follow Jesus if I knew what the end really looked like. Yet Jesus tells the disciples, listen, I go to prepare a place for you. And when I go, I'm coming back. Listen, Jesus makes that statement, and I'm reminded of what it says in 2 Corinthians 5, 7. We walk by faith, not by sight. Thomas is relying on sight. He wants to physically know where you're going. Because again, look at Scripture, verse 5. Thomas says, Lord, we don't know where you are going. How can we know the way? Thomas is thinking of something physical. He's thinking of a physical structure. But then we hear these words in verse 6. Words of assurance, words of hope. Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Think about this for a moment. I wonder if Thomas never asked the question, will we ever hear Jesus make this response? If Thomas doesn't ask, hey, we don't know where you're going, how to get there. If Thomas never asked that question, would we ever hear Jesus say, I am the way to treat the life of the Lord and the Father of the Lord? I just wonder. Thomas asked the question, it is legitimate. Question. So we really can't be too hard on, on Thomas, but he's asking a great question, which elicited a better answer. Jesus, we don't know where you're going. Jesus said, I'm the way through the life. So we go to the map about life, doubt about the future. Here's the last doubt we need to dissect this morning. Doubt about Doubts about God. After Jesus' crucifixion, the disciples go into hiding. We know this passage of scripture. We know the disciples are in hiding because the Jewish authorities want to find them and arrest them. So for three days, the disciples are hiding. For three days, they are in grief and they're mourning because their rabbi, their teacher, is gone. But then the Lord appeared to them. John chapter 20. Jesus appears to them, and they are overwhelmed. But here's where it gets interesting. Because the Lord's turning sorrow to joy, sadness to happiness. But notice who's not there. John chapter 20, verse 24. Now Thomas called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. Thomas is able. Thomas is not with the other disciples. We don't know where he is. We don't know what he's doing, what he's dealing with. But it simply says that Thomas wasn't there. Verse 25. Then the disciples therefore said to him, We have seen the Lord. So he said to them, Unless I see his hands in the print of the nails and put my fingers into the print of the nails put my hand into his side, I will not believe. This morning when you're moving from, from doubt to faith, there's an important lesson here. It's one of three lessons we see in this little spot of scripture. Distance from others is dangerous for doubters. 
Distance from others is dangerous for drowning. We live in a society that likes to isolate ourselves. We live in a society where we rather spend time on our phones, our tablets, and computers than actually talking to people in front of us. And if you're a doubter, it's easier for you to separate from anyone else to wallow in that doubt, to wallow in the sorrow. And there's a risk to your faith when you choose to be separate from other believers to wrestle with these things. And I found this statement, I think this statement is true this morning. Faith is strengthened in community, doubt is strengthened in isolation. Faith is strengthened in community, but doubt is strengthened in isolation. We struggle with doubt, and it pulls us from one direction to another. But listen, when I am wrestling with things that I doubt, the thing I need to do is be with other believers, not by myself. I need to be with others who are walking in the faith. I need to be with others who are going to be an encouragement. Again, look back at verse 25. It's the other disciples who are going to come and say, hey, we've seen him. And Thomas said, listen, if I can't touch him, I don't believe him. If I can't put my hand in the nail print, if I can't put my hand in his side, I do not believe. Thomas is alone. He hasn't seen Jesus like the other disciples have already seen him. And here's where we wrestle. The church should be the place where doubters find fellowship among those who don't doubt. That's why we have a fellowship of believers. So those who are struggling can come and we can encourage them. But notice what happens in this passage. Thomas is able, they go and track him down. Now look at me in verses 26 and 27. After eight days, his disciples were again inside, and Thomas with them. Stop right there. Eight days. Eight days. Thomas is still wondering. Thomas is still doubting. Thomas is still struggling. Eight days. And Jesus shows up and what happens. Jesus came, the door was shut, stood in the midst and said, Peace to you. Then he said to Thomas, Reach your finger here and look at my hands. And reach your hand here and put it in my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. Notice what Jesus doesn't do in this passage. He doesn't look at Thomas and scorn him. He doesn't look at Thomas and say, Listen, Thomas, you were with me for three years. You saw all these things I did. Why did you not believe? Why are you doubting? You saw me raise people from the dead. You saw me feed the multitude. You saw me walk on the water. You saw me cast out the demon. Why would you doubt that I'm alive? Why would you doubt that I was already with the disciples? Why would you have the audacity to say, hey, unless I see the print, I don't believe you? Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus simply says, hey, Thomas, look. Touch. Yeah. And he makes that statement at the end of verse 27. Do not be unbelieving. But believing, which leads to the second lesson in this passage, the pendable evidence is distributed to doubters. The pendable evidence is distributed to doubters. In the presence of the living Lord, all Thomas's question marks suddenly became exclamation points. Unless I see it, I'm not going to believe. 
Jesus said, here, touch me. Thomas goes from doubt to excitement because he's now in the presence of the Savior. He's seen it with his own eyes because he has now seen the evidence. He now has the evidence that helped him get over his doubt. Well, look at verse 28. Here's the explanation. Jesus says, hey, touch me, Thomas. And Thomas cries out, my Lord and my God. And then Jesus says these words in verse 29. Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen yet. You have believed. The third lesson in this little passage of scripture is this. Dearly treasured are those who are dead. Dearly treasured are those who are dead. Think about it. You have put aside your doubt to willingly follow Jesus Christ. You've never seen him. You've never spoken to him. But you don't doubt he's real. Listen, if you doubted Jesus, if you doubted this morning that Jesus Christ is real, why are you here this morning? Because you have no doubt. You believe Jesus is real. You believe he died for your sin. And now you and I have an obligation to talk and share with the doubt. Those who are struggling. I love the end of verse 29. When Jesus looks at Thomas and he says these words, Blessed are those who have not seen, yet have believed. There is no greater reward than to stand before the Father of Heaven and hear these words, Well done, good and faithful servant. Because you and I believe. Yes, we wrestle with that. But we believe that Jesus is saying what he did and saying what he did. So, what's the path in doubt and faith? Let's wrap up our time this morning. What's the path from doubt to faith? Because when it comes to dealing with your doubt, honesty is the best policy. And it starts with being honest with yourself. So let me give you some application. We've already dissected Thomas. We know what makes him sick. We know what makes him work. He had doubts about his life. He had doubts about God. He had doubts about the future. So what's the application? What's the takeaway this morning? Here are some thoughts. First, don't deny your doubts. Acknowledge them. People are afraid to admit they don't have all the answers. People are afraid to admit that. They don't have all the answers. Because deep down, you and I are afraid that our questions are greater than God's answers. And if we think about the truth of Christianity, sometimes we overthink things so much that our faith becomes weak. And because our faith is weak, we wonder if people will doubt we even know who Jesus is and we're following him and letting him lead us to be guided. We think about the questions we have that the God is so big. Can I tell you something this morning? Your questions, God can handle. God can handle any and every question you have. God handles them. God understands them. And God is not afraid of your questions. God is not afraid when you cloud him and ask why, ask how, ask where, ask when. He's not afraid of any of those questions, any of those thoughts. 
The German philosopher Frederick Nietzsche declared that God is dead. This man, this human, this very intellectual individual said, God is dead. God's response to him is this, Nietzsche is dead. God is still alive. Listen, philosophers come and go, but Jesus Christ remains the same yesterday, today, and forever. Listen, there are some trendy theories when it comes to what Scripture says, but biblical truth remains. Listen, this is the only source I need to know who God is. This is the only source I need to know who Jesus is. Not another man's opinion, not another man's thoughts. Because the danger there is when I rely on another individual's thoughts, I'm taken away from what Scripture is, what's true about Scripture. Nietzsche says God said, God said no, Nietzsche But God is still alive. And no matter what we do with what we face, there's truth in Scripture. Isaiah 40, verse 8 says, The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of God stands forever. Because He is forever. His word is forever. So don't deny your doubts. Acknowledge them. Listen, God is never disappointed or threatened by candid questioning. He's not. Listen, he's big enough to handle anything and everything. So don't deny it. Acknowledge it. Here's the second thought. Don't dread your doubts. Analyze them. Don't dread your doubts. Analyze them. Take your doubt and stand squarely in front of it and face it. Listen, there's a good chance this morning that what you're dealing with, what you're doubting, is something that somebody else is having the same issue with when it comes to doubt. Don't think you're going to wrestle with doubt about something. There's a strong chance that somebody else is also wrestling with the same thing when it comes to doubting something. So don't dread it, analyze it. What is it I need to do to get through this? What is it I need to do to overcome this? And here's the third thought. Don't disguise your doubts. Articulate them. Don't disguise them. Articulate them. Listen, when you refuse to talk about your doubt, that's rooted in fear. You're worried about what somebody's going to say. So don't worry about it. Acknowledge them. Analyze them. Listen, share them. Listen, when doubts begin to grow, I'm going to quote the theologian Barney Fife, who said, nip it, nip it in the bud. You're wrestling with doubt, nip it. Listen, that's the best theology right there when it comes to doubt. Do I trust in everything else? No. But in this, I, I agree. When it comes to wrestling with doubt, listen, you've got to stop it before it grows. So how do we do that? You need other people in your life to walk alongside you. Howard Hendricks, a seminary professor, he made this statement to his students that everyone needs to Paul as a mentor and a Barnabas as a friend. In your life, you need Paul, you need Barnabas. You need someone to be that mentor to walk alongside you, to show you the truth of Scripture, to be an encourager. But you need that Barnabas, that friend who's done with the same stuff you're dealing with. They can help you through it. But there's one more part of that equation. Take your Bibles one more time. Turn over to Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes chapter 4. 
Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verses 9 through 12, talk about the value of a friend. And this is what Scripture says, starting in verse 9 of Ecclesiastes chapter 4. Two are better than one, because they have a good reward for their labor. For if they fall, one will lift up his companion. But woe to him who is alone when he falls, for he has no one to help him up. And if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one be warm alone? Though one may be overpowered by another, two can withstand him, and a threefold cord is not easily broken. Listen, you need Paul in your life. You need a Barnabas in your life. But more importantly, you need God in your life. Listen, I can have a Barnabas all day long to be a mentor, but is he going to be the mentor that God has for me in life at that time? I need a Barnabas. I need a friend. But is it a friend that's going to help me in my walk or a friend who's going to be pulling further away without the third part of that equation? Three fold, a three fourth is smaller than two. Three fourth is smaller. Scripture says it right here. It says a three fold cord is not easily broken. Listen, when you're wrestling with doubt, listen, you talk to other believers, but more importantly, you talk to God about those doubts. So let me give you a formula as I wrap things up. Now I promise I am wrapping it up. Three thoughts. Again, these are by another author who I've read and I love them. And these are the, this is a three-point statement that I would encourage you sometime this week to find a page in your Bible to write it as a guideline. Here they are. Turn your doubts to questions. Turn your doubts to questions. And then turn your questions to prayers. Turn your doubts to questions. Turn your questions to prayers. Here's the most important part of this study right here. Turn your prayers to God. Turn your doubts to questions, questions to prayers, and prayers to God. Three steps that will help you moving from doubt to faith. Don't check out on me yet. Don't check out on me yet. When you do these things, when we turn to God and ask Him our questions, Listen, I want you to be encouraged as Thomas was encouraged back in John chapter 20, verse 27. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. Jesus tells Thomas those words, do not be unbelieving, but believing. And Thomas never forgot those words. History tells us that Thomas would go on to India to preach the gospel. He would go to China and establish churches. He come back to India. He converted thousands to God and established churches. When Thomas was an old man, he was praying in a cave. And some Baraham priests who were scared of Christianity, they would overtake Hinduism, came and thrust a spear into Thomas. And they dragged him to a nearby chapel. And they laid him next to a cross. And Thomas prayed these words. Lord, I thank thee for all thy mercies. Into my hands I commit my spirit. Those are not the words of a doubter. Those are a word of a man who trusts.
Savior, a man who had questions, a man who had doubts, but a man who overcame those doubts and trusted God, not having all the questions answered. Thomas conquered the mountain of doubt and faith. My prayer for every one of you here this morning is that when you are able to conquer this mountain, that you can have the boldness and assurance to make the same statement that Thomas makes. That you can stand before the Father and say, I thank you for your mercies, and into your hand I commend my spirit. But it starts with moving forward and getting over the mountain. Every head bowed and every eye closed. This morning, some of you came here wrestling with doubt about something. It may be doubt about a relationship. It may be doubt about work. It may be doubt about your walk in faith. But every one of us came in this morning wrestling with some form of doubt. And the doubt may not be crippling us. The doubt may not be causing us to power and fear. But we're wrestling with doubt. This morning, as we move into a time of invitation, a time of response, I want to encourage you this morning to let go of that doubt. To trust God with whatever it is you're wrestling with. And let Him be sovereign in all things. But this morning, I want to remind you that the only way you can let go of that doubt is truly give it to the Father by knowing the Son. Jesus tells Thomas in John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The only way you can let go of that doubt and move from the mountain of doubt over to faith is by letting go and trusting Jesus as Lord and Savior. This morning, that may be what you need to do. This morning, you may be wrestling with doubt because of some of the reasons we listed. Because your faith has been tested. Because you're dealing with things you shouldn't be having to deal with. Take those doubts and deal with the problems with them. So as we sing, open your hearts to Him. And let go of that thing that's keeping you from being fully engaged in your faith for the Father. Father of heaven, that we are through this time. Father, we enter it with an attitude of humbleness, gratefulness, but Father, we also enter into it with an assurance that's based on our hope. A hope that's not wishful thinking, but it's a hope that is assured because of what your son did to reach for the false rights of the world. Father, this morning, there are some here who are wrestling with doubts about many different things. Father, my prayer is to be ready to see just a moment to take that doubt and let it go. Father, they will turn that doubt into questions. And Father, they turn those questions into prayers and give those prayers to you. That's my prayer. Father, use this time. May you work by the one faithfulness. Praise to your son, and may you be the